we need to somehow finish quick this message and then have a little story about how to help your church grow a little. Um, what I wanted to say in this picture when I stopped in the morning is that people have a tendency to measure themselves against others. We compare ourselves with that guy, Mark Finlay, and the pastor, and that, oh, if I could be like him. Don't ever look to people. Put your eyes on God alone. Basically, if you compare yourself and you say, this is a sinner and this is a uh, good man and this is a holy man and uh, follow me, you feel that you are better than others. You are better than others and others are better than you and you either become proud and foolish or you become really discouraged that you'll never get like Paul, you know, like Mother Teresa. Basically, I mean, you can put people on a scale and there is always somebody better than you and somebody worse than you, okay? But if you compare yourself with God, you'll have a terrible experience. What happens? Ellen White says that the closer you get to Jesus, the worse you feel. Did you hear what I said? She says the closer you get to Jesus and the more you know him, the more you realize how weak and how sinful you are and you feel that you are not getting better, getting worse. And I have seen that. People coming to me, I've been praying and I really don't feel good about me. And I tell them, that's really good news. And so I says, people that don't feel that, they are far from Jesus. Because if they were close, they would feel like the greatest among sinners. As Paul says, I am. Paul was not playing theater like, oh, I'm the greatest among sinners. Paul meant it. Because the closer he got to Jesus, the more he realized, you know what? Compared to each other, I may seem one inch above you. But compared to Jesus, I am as far as heaven from earth. Because the more you look to Jesus, what happens? He doesn't seem to get closer. He gets farther and the distance between you and your brother is small. There is only one millimeter difference in holiness between you and him. But there is like... 100 miles between you and Jesus. And the more you know Jesus, is like when you are on the plane, earth becomes smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller to the point that you don't even see people. The, the, the closer you get to Jesus, the farther he becomes to the point that you don't even see yourself. You say, I'm too small. I cannot even compare myself with him. And from that distance, when you look between you and your brother, you don't seem that he is a sinner, the thief on the cross, and you are a holy pastor. When you look to Jesus and he is so far, the distance between you and your neighbor becomes insignificant. We are all the same. We all are sinners and we all deserve to die. And between me and the thief on the cross, there is no difference. We all die. Do you understand? But that happens. You see your brother just like you, When you see how far God is from you, when you think that you are better than your brother, it means that you have no clue how far God is. Do you get my point? 
And so therefore, I'm going to move quick. I'm trying to move quick, not to give details. Therefore, all your good deeds, we don't talk about bad deeds. We talk about eating healthy, going to church, knowing the doctrines, returning tithe, keeping Sabbath, and believing in the 2,300 days and night prophecy, and doing camp meeting and singing in the choir and teaching Sabbath school. All your good deeds, when you look to Jesus, become dirty rugs. Do you understand? And so therefore you cannot say that you did something good because it's bad. And only what Jesus does is perfect. I hope you can kind of get the point of what I am trying to say. My point is this. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus. And when you do that and you feel that you are bad, that means that you are still looking to self. And Satan wants you to look to self so you get depressed and you lose hope. And God wants you to forget where you are. Here or here or here or here on the scale. God wants you to look to him alone, period. So when you tell me, Pastor, I have been studying and I don't grow. I ask you, how do you know? That means that you look to self, you measure self, you monitor self. Stop looking to self. Your call is to constantly keep your eyes fixed on God. And if you take your eyes one second off God, you get depressed or you get foolish and proud. We are called to fix our eyes continually on God. And as you do that, you are transformed without human effort from glory to glory into his image. Transformed not by effort, but by beholding. Elena says at the foot of the cross, by beholding his sacrifice and his love, we are transformed into his image without human effort or knowledge. We are transformed by beholding. That's how you get righteousness. Not by deeds, but by relationship, by beholding, by knowing him. You get faith by knowing him. You get righteousness by knowing him. You get forgiveness by knowing him. You get salvation by... Basically, it's all based on relationship. Therefore, you cannot help the church grow unless you know him enough to have him real in your life. Then you can help the others. Therefore, our churches have no power. Because we have a bunch of programs, but not real, real connection. And people are not attracted by doctrines, regardless how good they may be. People are attracted by a real God. When people see God, they come, they need God desperately. And in our society, they can find God less and less, very rarely. But when they see God real, and God's love real, people come. And that's what, can we, what we can do, actually, to save our families and to grow our churches. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to move fast. I want to finish. They didn't know God's righteousness and they sought to establish their own. You understand? We try to replace what we don't have through the things we do. And that's the reason we never gain any victory or any peace and we don't save anybody around us. And our righteousness is extremely bad. It's paganism or Catholicism. I told you in the morning, you remember? It is only a profound, continual walk with Jesus. 
That's what you need to aim. That's what you need to work for. That's what you need to desire. That's what you need to thirst for. You need to make it the goal of your life to know God. And you say, okay, I may be far, but I'm going to use every day to get one inch closer to him and I'm going to ask him to help me know him. And that's how you grow. Now, Paul says, I know that nothing good dwells in me. How much good? Nothing good. And that's Paul the Apostle. He had been in vision in heaven. He had performed miracles. He was shipwrecked. He was uh, beaten for God. You follow me? If Paul says that, who are you and me to say different? Nothing good lives, lives. And I don't do what I want to do. I do what I hate. And that's not Paul in the beginning of his Christian life. That's Paul before he died of years before he died at the end of his Christian life. In the beginning he didn't know that he is so bad. Before he dies he says I am worse among sinners and do what I hate. Because the closer you get to Jesus the worse you see yourself. But in fact you are actually better. It's just that you compare yourself with Jesus not with you or others. And you will never get to his level. Therefore because you know him more you feel that you are worse. Because you see more of him. That's what Illinois says. And so Paul says, I do what I hate. Who is going to save me? I cannot save myself. And then he says, praise be to God. Because he understands that in his connection, that's the reason he says, I want nothing else except Christ and him crucified. That's the reason he says, That I want to know him and I want to be like him and I want to be one with his life and his death and everything. For me to live is Christ and to die, it's a gain because I see resurrection day and I see Jesus. For him, life is not important, job is not important, death is not important. All that is important, relationship. That's what we need to understand. People that understand relationship with God are people that have peace and power. God will never give somebody power Because we are selfish beings. And in human nature, we use that power in a wrong way. And God will give you power only when you are so connected that you die to self and you use that power only the way he says. Then it's safe for God to give you power. Before we die to self, we cannot be used powerfully. And we cannot, basically God loves you, helps you, but cannot use you. Do you understand what I am trying to say? When you start to know him and to surrender, then God can use you. Because then he can give you unlimited resources, unlimited power. You are not going to use it in selfish ways. You are going to use it the way he says. That's the reason Ellen White in Testimonies, volume 7, page 32, says, To everyone, how many? That means how many here? To everyone that fully surrenders withholding nothing for self. Withholding how much? That's a big deal. It's a lot easier to keep Sabbath and to eat broccoli than to surrender. To everyone who fully surrenders withholding nothing, unlimited heavenly power is provided for the attainment of measureless results. Can you grasp the quote? Unlimited heavenly power Can you even understand, can we humans understand that paragraph? 
unlimited heavenly power for the attainment of measureless results. When you fully surrender, fully die to self, fully forget self, when you withhold nothing, God can use you without limits. He can split the sea, he can resurrect the dead, he can do whatever he wants because you are no longer alive. You die to self, you have been crucified, and he lives in you, and he can control you the way he wants. In fact, Ellen White says in Thoughts from Mount of Blessing, she says, we should make no plans. And if we did, we should go every morning with our plans before the Lord and submit them ready to fulfill them or to give them up according to his will. And then she says, Jesus made no plans for himself, but every morning he received the plans from the Father for every day. And she says, if we make ourselves available to God and we are willing to give up our plans and to fully die, she says, we would lose nothing, but God could bless us and we would become a blessing for others. We would lose nothing. Abraham thought that he's going to lose his son. When he gave up his son, he didn't lose his son. When he gave up his life, he didn't lose his life. He was rich and he was okay. He had an army and he had money. God doesn't need to take your stuff. God just wants you to be willing to surrender so you don't love that stuff more than him. That's the reason Jesus says, who doesn't give up this and that and that, is not worthy to be my disciple. Because if you are not willing to surrender, it means that you love that stuff more than him and you don't trust him enough that he is able to provide. Do you follow me? Therefore, when you start to know him, and that's the key, you start to trust him and you are willing to surrender and you know that he will take care of it. You know that you will get water from the rock, bread from heaven, and he will make you a blessing for your family and he will make you a blessing for your uh, uh, church and he will make you a blessing for your city and make you a blessing for the world. God is able to use anybody to make you a blessing for the whole world. I don't know if you hear me. <clears throat> doesn't matter who you are. It's not based on your experience, education, or wisdom. It's based on God. God can use anybody. The more you surrender, the more you can be used. And we are afraid if we surrender, am I going to lose my job? Am I going to lose my house? God will not make you suffer. You don't have food. And you... The whole point is not that you lose your house. The whole point is that you are not self-centered anymore. Do you understand? Christians cannot be self-centered. In fact, Ellen White goes so far to say that to be self-centered is to copy Satan's character. To copy Satan's character. That means that Satan focused on self instead of focusing on God. And when we do that, we copy, imitate Satan. Isn't that terrible? Our society is self-centered, is selfish. We are called to be different. And she goes to say, when we surrender, then God can finally bless us. Isn't it strange that when you surrender, you feel that you lose the blessing, but just then you get the blessing? Think about it. We have been praying for a life. God, please bless me, bless me, and we never experience real blessing. I go to church to get a blessing, and you go home and you still don't feel blessed. And when you finally surrender and you are ready to give up self, then you are blessed. 
Because God in the Bible, again and again, doesn't give a blessing for self. He gives a blessing to be shared. And I can prove it to you. You pick the Bible verse and I show it to you. For instance, let's pick one. God blessed Abraham. He says so. He says God blessed Abraham so that he may be a blessing for all nations of the earth. Why did God bless Abraham? So that he may be. Eh? I can show it to you again and again. God intended them to be a light for the nations, she says, to spread God's love among the others. Their house was supposed to be a house of prayer for themselves or for all nations. Again and again. In fact, there is a quotation that says, nobody prays right seeking a blessing for self. Close quotation. You can Google it in the LNG White State and you find it. Nobody prays right seeking a blessing for self. Therefore, as long as you seek a blessing, you will not get one. But when you finally are ready to give up yourself and to die to self, that's where you actually receive a blessing because God knows that then you will share it. Do you understand what I am trying to say? Well, let me go a little farther than that. I try to do that. And the more I do it, the more stories I have. For instance, again and again, I can give you not one or two or three or ten. I could give you stories until we sleep here three days and three nights. We build a tent and stay here. Don't go home. Because these stories keep repeating. When you make yourself available, God is going to use you. Be careful what you pray for because it's going to happen. For instance, I get on the plane and I am dead tired. And I say, Lord, I am diamond with Delta. Usually, when they have seats, they upgrade me. Please, would you, would you work that they have seats and I get upgraded and I can rest a little because I'm tired. And after I pray that selfish prayer, God speaks to me and says, do you think that that's what I want? Who has been giving you strong health? And I say, Lord, please forgive my selfishness. And if you don't want me to rest, and you need somebody to, to receive a blessing, would you put me beside somebody that needs help today? And then I get peace, and God says in my mind, now I answered your prayer. I don't like it initially, to be honest, because I want to be in the first class, though I have never purchased a first class ticket, but because I fly over 300,000 a year, 300,000 miles, I'm diamond, and they upgrade me when possible. And so, instead of being in first class, God put me in comfort class. As soon as I sit down, a lady comes next to me, and she put her head in her palms, and she started to cry, but she was sobbing. <laughs> you know, I didn't know what to do. So I started to pray, Lord, help me be a blessing. And I said to her, can I help you? No, leave me alone. Okay. And she cried for two hours. And then she apologized. I'm sorry, I don't mean to be rude. But there is nothing you can do. My husband texted me that he left. And he's going to divorce me. He has a different love. He loves somebody else. What? What should I do, you know? 
Oh, I'm going to pray that he comes back. Maybe God doesn't want him to come back. You know? So I prayed in my mind before talking. And I said, Lord, you put her beside me. Please give me wisdom. And God put in my mind, be straightforward. Tell her that it's better this way. I said, listen, you are not going to be happy for what I say. You are going to hate me to death. But let me ask you, in the last two years, have you had a good life with him? No. He, for several years, he doesn't talk to me. He doesn't. Because a man who loves you doesn't just flip in one second and doesn't love you. That means that for a long time, you had no connection. And now, he got to the point that he doesn't care anymore and just tells you, you know what? Bye. So, since you didn't have a relationship with him, actually, this divorce happened long ago. She said, I know you are right, because he doesn't talk to me. We have not been together. We don't sleep together. We don't talk together. In fact, he, he screams at me. He calls me names. He doesn't love me anymore. He doesn't respect me. I have a miserable life. I lost weight. I cannot sleep. I'm, I'm, I'm depressed. I'm, exactly. So I hate to say, but you are better off. Now you have peace. You can start all over again, and he, you don't have to go home in stress. You go home peacefully. He says, I guess if you look that way, you are right. I go home and I don't stress that he's going to scream at me. I say, well, I know it's difficult because I have dealt with families in divorce. But I can promise you that I will pray for you and I can give you a suggestion. I want you, instead of keeping your eyes on him abandoning you for a different woman that makes you feel terrible, I want you to put your eyes on Jesus and focus on God's love. And I know it sounds like a theory, but I'm going to help you. And I gave her my book, One Miracle After Another. And I said, starting now, I want you to read one chapter. And if it doesn't help you, give me the book back. No offense. She smiled. She says, I guess I can do that. She read one chapter. She read two chapters. She started to cry. And then she started to laugh. And then she was crying. And then she was laughing. And she was reading. By the time we arrived, after four hours flight, she finished the book. And she jumps at me, and she hugs me more than she should, you know. And she says, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Uh, I left God when I got married because my husband doesn't believe in God. And to please him, I gave up church and prayer. But that was a mistake. I had no blessing in my family. Thank you. I'm going to go back to prayer. I'm going to start studying. I'm going to say, thank you, thank you. I said, that's enough. I said, nothing happens by chance. God put me here for a reason. You can keep the book. Do you have two? I want to give one to my kids. I said, not with me. Give me your address. I'm going to send you another one. What I did. But nothing happens by chance. You just say, Lord, I'm going to give up my comfort. And that didn't happen long ago. And I could give you another and another and another story. I was coming from Atlanta. I prayed the same prayer. A Jewish lady sat next. And she was reading in Hebrew. And I started to read from her Hebrew book. She was like, wow, you read Hebrew, you speak Hebrew. I said, no, I don't speak it, but I do read it and translate it. She says, wow, are you a Jewish guy? No, but I do keep Sabbath like you. You are an Adventist. I said, yes. <laughs> and she says, well, but Adventists don't read Hebrew and Greek. And you do, I guess. Yes. You are a pastor. Yes. She says, you know, we have something in common. We both believe in Sabbath. And I said, something else. We, don't, we both don't eat pork. She says, yes, yes, yes. And then she said, you know that I believe in Jesus too? Amen. And she says, I believe that Jesus was the son of God, according to Isaiah, and that our people crucified him. Wow. And she said, 30 
90% of Israel believe that, but they don't speak because they are afraid of the Jewish Orthodox. And she said, I believe that. And that opened the door. And we talked between Atlanta and Baltimore. We talked. And I gave her a book and I gave her my email. And every trip, every time, I get in the car and I pray. I go to work and I pray. And I could give you story after story. It doesn't happen every day. But at least every other day. Or Because when you are willing to give up self and you with honesty say, Lord, I'm not going to ask for a blessing. I'm going to ask that you make me a blessing. God is going to use you. But we are never, we never have eyes to see people around because we are too focused on our needs. Our job, our health, our salvation, our forgiveness, our family. And you'll never get a blessing in your needs before you learn to love the neighbor just as you love yourself. If God will not give you a blessing if you are self-centered. Do you understand? Therefore, the more you focus on self, the more selfish you become, the more proud you become, or the more depressed you become. God is calling us to contemplate his character, to understand his love for people that don't deserve it, so to be transformed and to love people that don't deserve it. And that's how we grow to become like Jesus. Do you understand? That's when church becomes powerful. That's when church becomes evangelistic without even doing evangelism. Imagine our churches living that way. People would love coming to our churches when they encounter love, genuine love and care and prayer, ready to help one another, ready to sacrifice for one another, everybody thinking about the other one, everybody praying for the other one, ready to understand instead of to judge. People love that environment. They feel safe. But when churches are judgmental, those are sick churches. It's not that people are bad. It's that we are spiritually sick. Yeah, no offense. If you don't like it, don't call me back. I'm okay with it. I'm not judging you. I am just saying that we have a disparate need to know God and to be transformed into his image. And if you really want to be a child of God, you need to start seeking to know him. Because that's what's going to change slowly. It's not going to be an explosion. It's going to be a process. It's called sanctification. It's not justification that takes a second. It's sanctification. takes a life. But the good news is that it doesn't matter if you are sanctified or not. What did I say? Not important if you are holy or not. As long as you are connected. The thief of the, on the cross, he was not holy. Yet Jesus told him he will be saved. People who enter the ark... They are not holy. The point, your holiness is dirty. Your holiness cannot save you. Even if you are Superman, and you from today on did only super good deeds, and you ate super food, and drove super car, and you super glue, doesn't matter who you are. You cannot still be saved through your deeds. It's only Jesus' gift that saves you. Therefore, doesn't matter how holy you are. 
All that matters if you are in Jesus. Christ in you, the hope of glory. He who has Christ has life. He who has no, has no Christ has no life. He who calls the name of the Lord shall be saved. Basically, as long as you call God's presence and you have Jesus, you are saved. You cannot be lost. As soon as you separate, you are lost. If you are in the beginning of your Christian experience and you are a sinner, the thief on the cross, Mary, the woman at the well, you are a sinner, but you call Jesus, you are saved because of his presence in you, because of his merits. You can be a saint, Paul, the apostle. If you separate from Jesus, you are lost. All your righteousness counts for zero. Doesn't matter where you are, here or here or here or here or here. Doesn't matter. If you have Jesus living in you, if you are in that process of growth, you are saved because you are in Jesus and he is in you. Therefore, your focus is to continually be connected. And he, as long as he lives in you, he's going to keep growing you through the sanctification process more and more and more and more, slowly, patiently, in love, He's going to grow you to the statue of fullness of Christ. And even if you don't get there and you die or Jesus comes, you are saved because he is in you and he is working on you. Do you know people that died and they were perfect? Because I know a lot of people have died and I don't know anybody perfect. In fact, the Bible says that none of us is perfect. We are all sinners. Yet there will be many saved. Not because they are perfect, but because those people had God in their heart. You follow me? <coughs> and so, some people say, I cannot go to prayer because I sinned. That's foolishness. It's like saying, I cannot go to the doctor. I am sick. <laughs> Duh. You don't go to the doctor after you get well. The same with God. I cannot go to God because I am so bad. I don't deserve it. You don't go to God because you are good. You go to God because you are bad and you need Him. You understand? Our sins should not keep us away from God. Should say, you need to go. You really need to go to the ER. You understand? Our sins should push us to fast run to the cross. And say, Lord, I'm not coming because I deserve. I'm coming because I don't deserve. You understand? Those things we need to understand. And we have a bad vision because we look to salvation by works. Though we say we believe in salvation by grace. Nevertheless, we look to salvation by works. Therefore, we feel bad about it. Instead of saying, I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. Anyway, let's continue a little. We want to finish. You are a sinner. You cannot atone for your past sins. You cannot change your heart. You cannot make yourself holy. But God promised to do all of this through Christ. You must trust in Him. You must believe. You don't need to understand. You don't need to be able. You don't need to deserve. You don't need to feel it, to smell it, to see it. You, to deserve it, to be able to do it. You just need to believe that God is able to save the uttermost. If you believe... He will make you whole. He, you, you are already whole. Do not wait to feel. I feel like electricity. I feel. Don't need to feel. God doesn't depend on your chemistry. Don't wait to feel. Just say. Because what you say influences the way you think. 
Just say, I believe, Lord. Not because I feel, not because I deserve it, but because you love me, because you promised. And thank God, before you receive it, as you have received it already, as Jesus says, believe that you have received them and you will have them. As God told Joshua to tell Israel, ask people to walk around Jericho and then in the seventh day to walk seven times and then to blow the trumpet and then to scream. Have you read that in the text? He says, then shout of victory. God didn't ask them to shout of victory after the walls came down. They're supposed to shout the victory before the walls came down. God wants you to rejoice in victory before you see the victory. It's easy to say, wow, after it happened. But you need to know your God enough to say, wow, before it happened. Not based on what happens, but based on who promised. My God, he promised. My God loves me. He gave his son. My God doesn't lie. So yes. Who can be against me? If my God is with me. I tell people this parable. If you are broke. And you are in foreclosure. And you have broken shoes. And you have broken coat on you. And your car, it's an old junk car broken. And you have debt on your credit cards maxed out. And you have school debt. And you are basically bottom, you know, hitting the rock. And you have no hope and no job. And your neighbor is Bill Gates. Sure, he doesn't live in your neighborhood, but anyway, let's imagine. (laughs) Your neighbor is Bill Gates. And you go to him and say, man, give me some works so I can pay my debt. That's what we do. We want to do works to pay our debt and to and to, to, to redeem our debt and to get out of debt and to be saved. That's what we do. Give me some works. And Bill Gates says, okay, we had snow last night. Shovel my driveway. I'm going to pay you $25 an hour. You work for two hours. You shovel hard. And he gives you $50. Is that works or grace? It works. Is the $50 going to pay your debt and save you? No. Hardly you can buy some yogurt, some bread, and some potatoes. And it's not enough to eat for one day with your family. And then you are broke again. In fact, you have been broke all along. You go next day again and say, give me more works. And you keep going for works. And you hope, this is mindless, this is foolishness. You hope that those 50 bucks a day are going to pay your debt. But those 50 bucks a day are hardly enough to survive from day to day. But not to pay your debt, 600,000, adding the house and the school tuition and the credit card. And You follow me? And the car. And you work for 50 bucks a day. And after a week, you go to Bill Gates and he says, no more snow. We didn't get snow last night. I have no works for you. Please give me some works, please. He says, no. Come on. No, I don't have any. Let me clean your house. It's clean. Let me clean your kitchen. Okay, go and clean it. Do some works because you never understand works. You never solve your debt problem. And you go in the kitchen and the kitchen is spotless. And you clean for five minutes. And you say, I'm sorry, but there is nothing to do that could help me. And he pays you. You work how much? Five minutes. And he gives you $100. Is that grace or works? No, it's both. You work five minutes. 
You deserve a call. I don't know. Do the math. 25 an hour, you work five minutes. I don't know. Four, five, six, seven dollars. You can do the math. I don't care. Okay. So you did works for seven dollars and he gave you grace for 93 dollars. That's what some Adventists believe. God does a lot, but I do a little too. You understand? Okay. You get works and grace mixed up the way you think. You get 100 bucks. Is that going to pay your debt? No. And then you go again next day because you never get it. That what you do is not going to pay your, not going to solve your problem. You go next day. Give me more works. And he says, you don't get it, do you? He says, sit down. No, no, no. Give me works. Sit down. Don't give me works. I need to work. I need to do something. I need to save myself. Sit down. Let's spend time together. And you, okay. It's Bill Gates. Okay. You sit down. He says, tell me your life. And you talk to him and you tell him, all your stories, since you were born, everything. And you talk two hours. And then he tells you his life, and he talks two hours. And after four hours, he says, you know what? I didn't know your story. I kind of like you. And he says, you know what? I didn't know you either. I like you too. He says, you know, man, I started to care for you. I'm going to do something for you. And he gets the checkbook out, and he writes you $10 million check. Is that okay? You're not happy. Okay, $20 million. Are you happy now? Okay, you are, okay, 20 million. He writes you a check for 20 million dollars. Tell me, is that grace or works? What did you do for it? Nothing. Relationship. You got to know him, he got to know you, you started to love each other, and he started to say, okay, I'm gonna help you. He gives you 20 million dollars. You look to the check, you see, nah, that's lack of faith. What if he's fake? You follow me? You struggle. And you run to the bank. He says, it's real. And you cash it quick before he would change his mind. <laughs> and after you see the money in your account, $20 million, you kind of... Uh, $20 million. And you start to process. It starts sinking in. And you... Whoa! $20 million? Can you imagine... Pays my house, it, I can get a convertible BMW S600, you know, 12 cylinder and crazy. I can, uh, I, I can pay school tuition, I can pay credit cards. I, uh, myself and my kids, we don't have to work. We are safe. We can live from interest and from generation. And you go crazy. Because it will take you 200 lives to earn $20 million. Because when you earn the salary, you have to pay the bills. You cannot save it and you have to pay food and you have to pay mortgage and you can never save so much. And he, bam, gives it to you for free. A gift that you don't deserve and you cannot do it. So what you do? You say, you go back to him and say, man, there is nothing I can give you except my dirty glove that I use in the stove. (laughs) But you don't need that, do you? It's broken, it's dirty. But you know, can I hug you? He says, yeah, you can. And you hug him, and you hug him again, and you kiss him, and he says, that's enough. Man, I love you, man. Can I clean your kitchen? He says, no need, it's clean. But can I shovel your driveway? It's, it's, there is no snow. Why do you do it now? To be paid? You don't need to be paid. You are rich. You do it because you love him. That's where works come into picture. Works come into picture when you understand how much he has done for you. 
when you understand the cross, when you understand eternal life, God is going to give me eternity forever and ever, though I don't deserve it. When you start to wrap your mind around it, you say, man, I love you. I'm happy to do whatever for you. I'm sorry I didn't trust you before. You know what? Do whatever you want. I trust your wisdom. I trust your love. That's what works come in the picture. You don't do works to be saved. You do works because of what he has done for you. And you don't expect any payment because he has already paid you a million times more than you would ever make. Do you understand the picture? We need to finish. I'm going to finish. I, I'm going to jump over all the slides. Forget all the slides, you know. Forget the, the sermon. Yeah. We, if we would ever grasp this, no one is declared righteous by works. Rather, you, you, you understand what I am saying? We need to understand the whole picture is based on God's love. His rela- the relationship with him would change us, would save us, would forgive us, would give us transformation and growth and victory and power as long as we are connected. When we are disconnected, regardless how many doctrines you know, regardless how much tofu you eat, when you are disconnected, you are lost. It's only God's presence that makes you something. Without him, we are nothing. Okay, I think I want to finish and I... I'm going to go quick. Through the simple act of believing God, the Holy Spirit has already begotten a new life in you. And He loves you just as He loves His own Son. Can you understand that? God loves you as He loves Jesus. Isn't that a wow? As, sorry, okay. As you read God's promises, remember their expression and utterable love and pity. The great heart of infinite love is drawn toward the sinner with boundless compassion. Only believe. As you draw near to him with confession and repentance, he will draw near to you with mercy, forgiveness, and new life. Amen. So, so, you know the story of Dave Rover. Dave Rover was a soldier in Vietnam. He was uh, uh, in a special, special forces uh, company, 26 soldiers, 25 or 26 soldiers, and they were given a mission to go up a river quietly to get to a point to destroy some specific location. And they were going on the river quietly in the night. And some of the enemy's soldiers threw a phosphorus grenade in their boat. Now, I've been a lieutenant in the army. I don't know if you know what it means, but a phosphorus grenade is the most dangerous grenade. When it explodes, wherever phosphorus would be sprayed and would touch is going to burn forever. And nothing can stop the fire as long as there is air and oxygen is going to burn. You need to take all the oxygen off for the fire to stop. You cannot put the fire off. When the grenade landed in the boat, Dave Rover felt responsible for the other soldiers that he was the captain over. And he took the grenade to throw it back. And the grenade exploded in his hand. And the grenade took off his right side of the head, ear, nose, 
bones, everything, took off his arm, took off half of his body here, and took off his hip and leg. Basically, half of him was missing. And he burst into flames. And for that second, as long as you are conscious, he jumped in the water because he knew that the fire would not stop. But then, they took him above the water to take him to hospital. As soon as they got him above the water, fire started, the flames started again because there was oxygen. So they put him under the water, but he would need air. So they got him above, the fire started again. So they covered him with blankets and left a space here to breathe. The fire started here. They covered him and put a straw so there would be no phosphorus at the end of the straw and he would breathe through. And then they made a hole in the lungs or here or I don't know where. You read in his book, you can find his book. And they took him to hospital. And by miracle, he was 11 months in hospital, he was saved. And they put a bag instead of a stomach. They put a plastic ear. They left a hole here. They put a glass eye. And he had no arm. And they put a prosthetic leg. And anyway, 11 months in hospital. He asked the doctor, give me a mirror. I want to see myself. The doctor said, Mm-mm, you don't want to see yourself. No, I want to see myself. No, please don't. Eventually, he got the mirror from the nurse. When he saw himself, he said, I'm good for nothing. I thought I was somebody. I was educated. I was powerful. I had power in the army. I had influence. I accomplished things. I thought I'm somebody. I'm terminated. I'm good for nothing. I look terrible. I am a monster. My life is done. I have no reason to live. Nobody can love me this way. I don't deserve anything. I cannot do anything. When you get to the point to understand that you know nothing, you have nothing, you can do nothing, and you deserve nothing, then Christ can work in you. And so he says, I'm nothing. I'm done. And he, after the nurse left, he pulled the life support tube to kill himself. But he would not die. Two days later, he asked the nurse, listen, I pulled the tube to kill myself, and I'm still alive. And she says, you know nothing about medicine. You pulled the feeding tube. (laughs) You just go hungry. And she says, why would you want to kill yourself? And he said, because my life is over. And she says, well, your life is not over. But I am good for nothing. She says, well, in Jesus, you are good for everything. That's impossible. Look at me. She says, that's because you don't understand grace. You look to works. You look to what you can do. You don't understand that we have no value and Christ in us makes us as powerful as God. You can do anything. He says, Bologna, if that was real, it would be worth to live for it or to die for it. She says, exactly. He says, I want to see it. I don't want a sermon. I want to see who can love somebody like me. Then I believe in grace. Next day, the wife of the other soldier that was missing only one leg came, saw him without a leg, took the wedding ring, threw it on the bed, and she said, I'm going to divorce you. I cannot live with you. And the rover said, you see, to the nurse, I told you it's all about what we deserve. Nobody really cares for us when we are good for nothing. There is no grace. There is no love. It's all a theory, a sermon. Next day, his wife came to see him with the left hand 
He pulled the blanket over, hiding. His wife says, Dave, let me see you. No. Let me see you. I look ugly. She says, you never look good to begin with. (laughs) I didn't marry you for your good looks. I married you because I loved you and because of your heart. And for what you did to save your soldiers. That means that you are the same man that I loved. That's the reason I love you, for your heart. Let me see you. No. She pulled the blanket. She saw him. And he was like, she came close and she kissed him and she says, I love you more than before. For me, you are just as beautiful as before. Come home. You belong home. You don't belong here. We are together. We, we never separate. Come home. And he said that he started to cry. And he says in his book, in that instant, I understood how grace works. You understand? Grace is not based on what you can do or how much you deserve or how you look like. Grace is based on God's love. On God alone. His covenant. His heart. His character. Therefore, instead of focusing on what you do, you need to focus on knowing Him. Because the more you know Him, the more you are transformed and become like Him. That's the single way we experience transformation. The more you become like him, the more you trust in him and start blessing others. The more you bless others, the more God can give you blessings. Because now you'll not be self-centered. You understand? And God is calling us. He's not calling you. Sure, God wants us to be holy. But he's not calling you to say, if you are not holy, I don't love you. If you don't change today, I cannot work with you. God says, just, just take one step towards me. Just take one step towards me. I'm going to take one step towards you. And then you know me more. When you know me more, you'll take another step. And I patiently work with you. And I have patience with you. You just need to trust in me. You understand? I'm trying to make salvation so simple that you never have to struggle again. Salvation is so simple that children rejoice in it. Adults like to make it complicated. Leave it alone. It's simple. You don't need to make it impossible. Children get it. You follow me? My kids, if I tell them, tomorrow I'm going to buy you this, my kids already rejoice because they know me. They know that if I say it, I do it. My wife knows me. If I tell her you'll get this, she trusts me. Can you trust God? Okay, finished. Done. Questions? No questions. That's good. When people don't have questions, we say in Romania, they either got everything or they got nothing. Formed in in us and 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 uh, and so, we meet Christ. So, so there are three stages. Yeah. No no need to finish. Let me let me just say there are three stages: justification, sanctification, glorification. Justification is when you give your life to Jesus, when you choose Jesus, and you get baptized. You choose to love and to follow Jesus. In that moment, you are not holy, but you made the choice. You are still sinful. You are. Let, let me finish. And justification is one-time event. 
But then people think that that's the good news. I've given my life to Jesus. That's stupidity. It's like you say to a baby, you got born, take care of yourself. That's not the end of the story. Baptism is the beginning of the story. Because the baby needs to grow. So, after justification follows sanctification. Justification is one-time deal when you give your life to Jesus. Because people don't experience the next step called sanctification, that's the reason they come and, Pastor, I've been, I committed my life to Jesus, but still I have no joy. Because they did the first step, had a baby, had a big celebration, a big meal after baptism, and they thought they are done. No, 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 no. You're just born. You need to grow up. And so, therefore, after the justification step comes sanctification. Sanctification is not one event. It's a lifetime process that you daily, through small daily things, learn. And this is where people fail. This is what they don't understand. Sanctification, it's a lifelong process. You don't see babies growing, but they do grow. You don't see flowers growing, but they do grow. You don't see grass growing, but they do grow. Therefore, they expect to see themselves growing, and they don't understand that they do grow. And they lose hope, because they don't trust that God is working. And this is where Jesus says that small foxes ruin big vineyards. And this is what Elamite explains and says, the daily small incidents of life are God's means to grow us. And she says nothing in a different book, in Prophets and Kings. She says nothing, regardless how small, is not insignificant. She says all things, regardless how small, daily, they are important. And she says if we'll be faithful in the small things, we would grow and God could give us bigger things. And then she says, I've seen people that wait for big things and they will never want to be useful unless there is a big opportunity. And she says, the daily small things are the means that God would develop patience and trust and this and that and that. And as you daily grow, you don't know. But God is working. And this is where I answer your question. And this is what you need to hear, my sister. In this, let me finish. In this process, what you need to do in the second step called sanctification, you need to daily surrender your life to Jesus. You follow me? In this sanctification process, what it means to surrender? That every morning you call him and give him permission to work. And you say, Lord, I need you today again. Please, don't let me separate, don't let me forget. I give you permission, do whatever it takes, regardless how much it hurts. I give you permission to work with me today. So you daily call his presence and give him permission to work. And you daily make yourself available. Lord, use me today. And as you do that, you will not see a change from today to tomorrow. But you'll see a change in time. If you look back two years later, you'll see that he has been working. Just don't look from today to tomorrow. And then the third step is glorification. When God comes and takes us home. Now listen carefully. First step, it's a second. Second step, it's a life. Third step, it's an eternity. You follow me? First step, you are considered righteousness. Righteous. Second step, you are growing towards the statue of fullness of Christ. Third step, your nature is totally changed. It doesn't matter where you got in this process. It matters that you call him daily. And if you are in the process, you are saved. If you are outside the process, you are lost.
Do you understand? Okay, one more question. Somebody else. Everybody. Me, 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 me. No? Okay. That's good. It means that we finish. We do have time if you want. I give you another 10, 15 minutes. For free, Sabbath, I cannot even charge you. I'm going to give you a story. If you don't have more questions, I'm going to give you a story. I want to clearly emphasize something that may actually help you a little. We have a big problem with forgiving self and forgiving others. And because, Elena says, because we don't know how to forgive self, we can never have victory over sin. I don't know if you heard. I'm trying to repeat. Because we don't forgive self, we remain in sin, she says. When we accept forgiveness by faith, she says we are forgiven. In that moment, we are sin-free, sinless. And she says God in that moment gives us a new start. The whole point is this. We don't know how forgiveness works. Well, let me explain a little. You may have heard the story. I was in my first district. I had a big head, I told you in the morning, didn't I? I thought I was somebody. When I stepped into that district, there was a guy that worked for the secret police, for the security, or Russians called it KGB, but in Romania it was security. That guy has fired 17 pastors before me. That guy has put people in prison. That guy was a monster. That guy would take the tithe from the church and spend it to buy furniture for himself and car and this and that. Nobody could oppose him because as soon as somebody would oppose him, he would call the police and people would be arrested. They didn't elect him 20 years before I got there. They didn't elect him as a head elder. He had been a head elder over 40 years. They didn't elect him. And he called the police. And the police came, closed the church, and said, you have no church before you elect him an elder. So they had to put him back an elder so the police would come and unlock the church. It was a terrible situation. When I arrived in the district, that guy came to me. Fat. Big. We don't say fat. He was big. It was easier to jump over him than to go around him. He was big. And the guy came to me. He was red. He came to me. He said, young man, I'm God. I thought he was joking. I said, good morning, God. I am Paul. How are you doing? He says, I'm not joking. I said, nice to meet you, God. I, I was educated by my father. And my father taught me to have no fear. He has zero fear. He said, people who are afraid don't have a God. If your God is real, you are not afraid. Because love and God's presence would cast out any fear. And he said, if God is with you, even if you go in the fiery furnace, if you go in, in then, if God is with you, you are not afraid. And if God wants you to die, why would you be afraid? It's God's will. Just rejoice. And if God wants you to live, you don't have to be afraid because God is in control. And whatever he decides, that's what is the best. You don't have to be afraid. And my father would tell me, Revelation 13, top of the chapter. It's a list of people who will not go to heaven. Top of the list, people who are afraid. And he says they have a theory of God. They don't have a God. 
And when the police would come and search our home for Bibles, my father would, people would cry, people would shake, please don't put me in prison. My father would stand straight. Do you have Bibles? My father, go inside and check. Do you have or not? You want me to answer? Then I get your salary. Do your job. Get in the house and check the house and leave me alone. Aren't you afraid? No. You don't impress me. My father was basically fearless. They put the gun in his chest. I said, hold on a second, let me open the buttons. Oh, the bullet goes through your shirt. I know. It's just don't stain it because there are poor people that don't have a shirt. Take the shirt, give it to somebody poor, and then you can shoot me. Aren't you afraid? No. And they said, you are crazy. He said, maybe, in your mind, because you don't know my God. We are going to take your house. I gave it to the church too late. We are going to take your salary. I pay every month 90% and I keep only 10 in the house. My father was paying 90% tight, month by month. We are going to take everything you have. He says, I gave it to the church. You are too late. We are going to kill you. One second to resurrection. I see Jesus. That's a favor. Thank you. They could not, they could not get to him. And my father told me, no fear. So when the guy came to me and said, I am God. I said, nice to meet you, God. I am Pavel. He says, I put 17 pastors, some of them in prison, some of them fired, some of them moved. I can move you. I said, well, they threw me in the mountains in the worst district. If you actually move me, that would be a favor. Thank you. Because I expected to be in a big church and they put me mountain, countryside, worst church in the world, you know. I said, please move me. He was like, aren't you afraid? And he started to scream. And I said, stay away. When you scream, you spit. And I don't have an umbrella. I don't have an umbrella. Just keep the distance, please. He started to fume and he was red. And I said, calm down. You'll have a heart attack. Just relax. You don't impress me. Whatever you do, so calm down. Man, he was getting really angry. I know I was young and crazy and stupid. I should have been more polite. I, now I know to be more polite, but in that time, I was young, you know. And so, the guy told me, I do whatever I want. If you cross me, you'll pay for it. You do what I say, and you'll be happy. And I said to him, you don't impress me even now. I'll do what God says. I'm going to terminate you. I said, are you Schwarzenegger? The Terminator? He was like, can you be serious? I said, nah. uh And so the guy hated me. And to be honest, I hated him too. He made my life miserable. He would call the conference after every sermon and twist my words and misinterpret me and tell the conference that I said we should not keep Sabbath when I never said that. I said that Sabbath doesn't help you unless you really love Jesus. And tell the conference this and that and that. And He would complain. One time he complained that I missed going to the funeral to preach. He was lying because actually... I performed the funeral and I had pictures preaching at that funeral. And so he would just lie, lie, lie to make my life miserable. And it's easy to tell the story, but it was very challenging to go through the story. Because he made my life so hard, I could not stand him. I could not see him. I hated him. And my wife came to me one day and my wife says, you should get out of ministry. Get out of ministry. I said, why? You are not a pastor. I said, how do you know? You hate this guy. And God said that you are a pagan if you love those who love you. You need to love those who hate you. I said, 
If you want, you can love him. He says, you, you are the pastor. You are called. God put you here, maybe for him. If God saved Nebuchadnezzar, who killed Jews, and destroyed the temple. If God saved the Syrian captain of Darni, who killed the Jews. God loves this guy. If the thief on the cross, God loves this guy. And you need to pray like Jesus. Forgive him because he doesn't know what he does. And please save him. And you need to do your best to save him. I said, how can you save Satan? This guy is worse than Satan. And my wife says, exactly what I said. You need to get out of ministry. I started to pray for him. Lord, help this evil guy. And my wife says, no, 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 no. You need to labor for him as you pray for our kids. Oh, that was very hard. But the more I prayed for him, the more I started to actually care. You follow me? And then, church members came to me and would say, how do we deal with him? He is evil. And I would say, you need to pray for his salvation and you need to love him. And church members would say, are you crazy, pastor? This guy, we all hate him. I said, that's the reason God doesn't remove him. Not because of him, because of you. God allowed him to teach you a lesson. Because in my Bible, nothing happens by chance, but all things, how many? Work together. So if God allowed it, it's because we need it. Because if, if God didn't allow it, he would not have been here. God is trying to teach you to learn how real love works. And I told them, you need to pray for him and to love him. And they said, we've never heard the pastor saying that before. I said, well, that's the problem. And I said, I hate him too. And I am trying to learn to love him. Let's get together and pray for him. So I got the church together and we started to pray for that crazy guy. And the more we prayed for him, the more the church became less critical, less judgmental and more loving. Do you understand? And the more we prayed for him, the more the church started to get together. And eventually they asked me, we have election in the fall. Should we elect him or not? I said, why do you ask me? I don't do politics. Pray. What if God says don't elect him? Don't elect him. What if the police would close our church? Let them close the church. Well, we want the church open. No, you don't. When you have a church, only a building, you don't have a church. You should not compromise for the sake of having a building to worship. You need to do what is right even if you die. And if God wants the church open, God can keep it open. Well, but the communist government, God is stronger than the communist government. You don't know God. That's the problem that you have. My God can keep the church open. I want you to do what is right regardless if you go to prison or the church closes. And to trust that God can solve it. But no pastor told us that before. And I started to pray that God would give them wisdom that they would be willing to go in the fiery furnace and not to compromise. And as we are preaching and praying and learning and praying for our enemies, and uh, the church started to grow. But it didn't grow, really. And he had no baptisms for many years. We had nominating committee and we had election and they didn't, after 40 years, didn't elect him anymore. And I was on the stage and there were a group of people there and I came to read the list. When I read the list, he was not the head elder anymore. He was in the second row front. 
stood up as big as he was. He put his finger towards me. Young man, today your life is over. I will terminate you. When he said that, he had a heart attack and he dropped. In the church. They took him with the ambulance to the hospital. He lived five, five more days and he died. The doctor sent him home because they said it was a major heart attack. The damage is so big. In that time in Romania, they said there is nothing we can do. He died five days later. My wife sent me to visit him. She says, you need to go. Nothing happens by chance. God loves him and he will not listen. So God would use anything to give him eternity. You need to go. If God wanted him dead, he would be dead. But God gave him a few more days. You need to go. I said, Dana, that man is not salvageable. You know, it's, it's impossible. He's, he's, he's crazy. She says, you don't know. The thief on the cross was crazy. You don't know. If God didn't tell us the story in the Bible about the thief, you would not know that he was saved. Go. Go before it's too late. You are called to save him. I said, I'm not sure if that's right. And then she said, well, then God put him here to save you? <laughs> oh, my wife. So, <laughs> so I did go. I said, Lord, give me love and wisdom and help me to care enough and help me to save him. And God said in my mind, you really don't love him, so I cannot use you. And I was in shock. I said, what do you want me to say, Lord? And God impressed me. It came in my mind in that moment what Moses said. Take my name off, but save them. When they wanted to stone Moses and to look for a different leader, Moses interceded for them, willing to give up his eternal life. And I felt terrible because I said, why would I say that for this guy? And I started to pray and I said, Lord, would you forgive me actually? I am the sinner. Because I am supposed to be like Jesus. And Jesus was willing to risk his eternity to save us. And Moses did that. And Paul did that. He said, I would rather be anathema. And that means cut off from the book of life. And I said, forgive me because I am not a good pastor. And I said, would you help me to love him just more than I love myself? And in that moment, I prayed the first most difficult prayer in my life. And I learned to pray it since. And I said, Lord, I'm going to say it. I, I'm not sure if I mean it, but I'm going to say it. I am willing to sacrifice myself if you would save this guy. And when I said that, I kind of bit my tongue. And I really struggled to say the words. And then I say it again, Lord, I say it very hard, but if you want, kill me or lose me and please save this guy. That would be a miracle. In that moment, it was the first time in my life and in my ministry when I sensed that God said, good job. Now, you start to understand. I went to him and he saw me and the guy says, what are you doing here? You came to rejoice that I die? I said, no, I came to pray for you. He says, I hate you. And I said, listen, I hate you too. But I started to pray for you. And I prayed that God would rather take my life and save you. He opened big eyes and he said, you are crazy. You cannot do that. Nobody can do that. I said, Jesus did that. And we are not called to be saved. We are called to save. We are called to sacrifice self for the sake of others. That's what the good shepherd does for the sheep. And I said, I am not good because I hate you with all my heart. 
But my wife encouraged me to love you, and I started to pray. And the more I prayed for you, the more actually I started to care. And he started to cry. And he said, nobody loves me. People hate me, and I hate them. I said, well, Jesus loves you. He said, no, God gave me up long ago. The Holy Spirit left me long ago. And I said, how do you know? You keep the Holy Spirit in a box, and you looked, and the box is empty. He said, oh, don't joke. I said, no, I'm serious. How do you know the Holy Spirit left? How do you know? He said, well, I don't know. Then why do you say the Holy Spirit left you? Do you want to be saved? Yes. Then the Holy Spirit didn't leave you. Because human nature will not want that. It is the Holy Spirit who says, go back. He says, you think that I have hope after so many things that I have done. I've destroyed pastors. I've destroyed church members. I've put people in prison. I've destroyed lives. Do you think that God can still forgive me? I said, God forgave Paul, who was a persecutor. Are you kidding me? Sure God can forgive you. I mean, Jesus' blood is sufficient. He says, do you think is salvation available for me? Possible. Absolutely. He started to cry. What shall I do to be saved? I said, confess. He said, well, to you? I said, no. God forbid, I am not a Catholic priest. To God and to the people that you wronged against. He says, but I cannot speak. He was so weak. He was whispering. I cannot speak. I said, that's okay. I will speak for you. And he started to tell me, call so-and-so. I put him in prison. He's back home. Tell him that I'm really sorry. I called the guy. I cannot forgive him. I said, well, then we need to pray for you. Bye. I called the next one. I cannot forgive him. I said, you need to repent. Because God can forgive you just to the extent that you forgive others. If you don't forgive others, you cannot go to God for forgiveness. You need to repent. But he has done, he doesn't deserve forgiveness. But you don't deserve forgiveness either. God has forgiven you for free. You need to forgive him for free. But he has destroyed my life. You destroyed the life of the son of Jesus. Stop complaining. Forgive him. But, but it's, stop arguing. But, 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 just say I forgive him. Uh, uh, say it. I forgive him. Bye. Next one. <laughs> Three days I called from morning to night. I got tired calling people and asking them forgiveness for him. And then he says, I don't remember anybody. What if there are more people? God doesn't consider the sins that you don't remember. Say, Lord, forgive my sins that I don't remember. He said, Lord, forgive my sins. Now, now you are forgiven. He says, am I? Yes. How do you know? The Bible says so. If you confess, God forgives. Done. You are saved. Am I? Yes. How do you know? God says so. He says, come here. I said, are you going to heal me? No, come here. Okay. I went close. He put his head on my shoulder and he started to cry. And he says, you are the first pastor I ever had. And he cried. Two days later, he died. He cried and he says to me, would you bury me? I said, almost, almost. I said, that would be my joy, but I didn't say it. Would you bury me? In my mind, you know, that would be my, but I said, I will do it. He said, tell everybody that God loves them with a love that I never understood before. And the guy said to me, if you didn't forgive me and love me, I would have been lost forever. And in that moment, I understood that if I didn't forgive him, I would have been lost forever. Do you understand? It's not that I saved him. He saved me. Do you get what I am trying to say? The more you understand God, the easier is to love those who hate you. You don't have to agree with them. You don't have to enable them. In fact, 
You have to put boundaries. Jesus says, go to them. And if they don't listen to you, they should be for you like a pagan. And that doesn't mean not to love them because Israel was called to love the pagans. That meant in Hebrew culture that you put boundaries so you don't permit for them to do it again. Basically, you should not enable them. You follow me? You put those limits to the point that you allow so much interference, you allow them to come so close so they could not hurt you again. But that doesn't mean that you don't love them or you don't forgive them. That's how forgiveness works. After that guy died, and the story, the church knew the story, 44 people got baptized. I don't remember, 43 or 44, not important. But the whole church was moved. And the whole church started to sense that God is working. Because forgiveness brings joy, power, repentance, forgiveness. When you experience forgiveness, you are totally different. And that's another subject that we don't get. But I don't want to preach another sermon. We are done. Okay. No more questions. I don't want to take a few minutes. Groups are two or three, not four. When you have four or five in groups, somebody would pray long and the others don't pray. Ellen White says that in groups we should pray short. She says those people who pray long in the churches because they never pray long at home. She also says in another quotation, long prayers in the church where even the angels, close quotation, where even the angels. Yeah, you need to go home, close the door and pray long the whole night if you want, but not in the church. You follow me? So, small groups, two or three, and before you pray, ask the other one what to pray for. Don't let them tell you the story of their life and they take half an hour. Give them five seconds. And don't let them give you 20 prayer requests. Only one. They need to prioritize. Which one is the most important? What do you want me to pray for? And they need to think and say, pray for my wife or pray for my son or pray for my children or pray for my growth. Or pray. You don't need to be specific. You are specific in, the lo- with the, in private with the Lord. So ask one another in groups or two or three and pray for the next one. Pray one for another. Okay? Then I'm going to have a closing prayer. Let's do that. So, groups two or three, not bigger than three, and you have three minutes to share and to pray for one another. Starting now. Father in heaven, We cannot find the words to thank you enough for your infinite, unbelievable, amazing, undeserved love. We cannot grasp a drop of your love. But Father, we do want to know you. Help us thirst for you daily. Help us seek you daily. And this way, help us know you more and more and trust you more and more. Help us not look for big things, but be faithful in the daily small things and trust that you will grow us according to your plan and use us according to your plan. Help us learn to trust in you and to rejoice in you. I pray that you bless these people here, everyone that participated in this weekend or will listen later on the internet. I pray that the blessing will not be self-centered, but that blessing of knowing you 
and serving you. I pray, Father, that it's going to spread around like fire to the point that more others would get to know you through this group and that people would have the joy of understanding you and being saved. And Father, we pray that in all these things we forget self and give you the credit because it belongs to you absolutely and entirely. Father, we trust that you rejoice in our prayer. You are waiting for this prayer and we'll pray this prayer daily. We believe that you'll answer better than we can even think to pray. And based on your love and in Jesus' merits, we thank you, Lord. We thank you and we praise you and we love you. Amen.